0: Chapter 19, starting in verse 45 through chapter 20, verse 8. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, "'Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who, is, who it is that gave you this authority?' He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you, by what authority I do these things. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. What, what do you find exhilarating in life? What really gets your, your heart rate up when you see it? There are many exciting good things that when we just think about getting to do them, they, they fire us up. Maybe a sporting event, March Madness is just going on. Uh, that's all I'll say. March Madness is going on. I'll stop there. It's a bad first uh, round. Uh, but March Madness is going on. You know, maybe It's a basketball game, get your, a sporting event like that gets you excited to see something. Or maybe going and watching a live ball game is exciting. Maybe seeing a performance of a, spe- a music act or, or, or an actor, you really just kind of get you excited to go see. Um, I was on vacation this past week, and when you stand around and you watch uh, Disney World spend its uh, exorbitant amount of money it's putting fireworks display on every night, kind of can't help but get caught up in the music and the theme of everything that's going on there. There are all of these things we can go on and on about that we find just just by their very existence kind of get us fired up and excited. And there's also that on the negative side, there are sometimes negative things that you see happen that immediately Get your blood pressure up. I mean, immediately your ears start getting, or mind you, they start getting red and you can't, you can't hear as well because you're just focused in on something that's going on that really gets your blood pressure up. There's silly things like, well, I was on vacation, people in lines that aren't ready when they get to the front of the line with what they're supposed to be doing, which makes your line late and all the line. And you ever notice that your line is always the slowest line? It doesn't matter what you do. Your line is slow. And so then you get in the fast line and then the other line moves and you're just, it's that can get silly things like that. Crowds walking around and talking on their phones and not paying attention where they're who they're running into. Or you'll see someone walking in a crowd and they're walking like this, talking to the people behind them while there's masses of people walking around. Things like that, they just really can, if you're a person who's prone to maybe a, a quicker temper than others, really get your blood going. We can go on a long time around, down that road. But there are serious things also that really can get your blood pressure up. When someone is needlessly disrespectful to someone else, when you see uh, a kid behind someone's back or, or doing to a, speaking disrespectfully, sometimes that can really just, you see a kid who has a pattern of doing that and it really just kind of triggers your button. You just think, I can't stand watching this. Or when someone who is mocking someone else, maybe behind their back and they they about something they can't change. They're just they're just being mean to someone else. That can kind of push you over the edge sometimes, can't it? Where you think don't be like that. It can really get under your skin make some sort of outrage when you see someone knowingly taking advantage of someone else. Maybe you've got someone who, who you care about and you have a couple of friends and, and the one friend is, is kind of knowingly taking advantage of the other person and without them knowing it, it can really get under your skin. And that's happens there are many things like that that can trigger our outrage but at times some of those are righteous outrages aren't they when you see someone sinning against someone else and it makes you angry at the other person there's a sense in which that is at some level a righteous outrage I'm not saying it's perfectly righteous but that there is some sort of an injustice is going on. Something wrong is happening and it makes you upset. Well, this morning we get a look at Jesus and his righteous anger that he is seeing an injustice, he is seeing something evil, he has seen something wrong, and he is responding with righteous anger. But the question is, what are the behaviors that righteously elevate Jesus' blood pressure? Whether it was or not, I don't know, we weren't there with a cuff on him, so I'm not sure it was really... <laughs> but he has a righteous anger. What causes meek and mild Jesus... I mean that 's kind of the theme right of jesus he's he 's he's the guy that we have who 's softly knocking at your door of your heart or something like that, or, or sitting down with the lambs and, and holding the little ch- all the, uh, holding the little children, all of these things which he did, but we paint these pictures kind of of, of nice, soft, flowing hair as I like to call him, Vidal sassoon jesus you know he 's just smooth. well, what ha- happens that takes smooth Jesus and takes him to the place where he is launching tables over. You know how loud that is? Don't try it today um, when we're having lunch. But if you ever, I mean, to take to take a table full of stuff, coins and whatever, do it when you get home. How yeah, about that? When you go home, go to your kitchen table and just dump the thing and see how loud, what a violent activity That is, well, what causes Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, who's all love and all compassion, to turn tables over? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. We want to ask these couple of questions. Do the concerns of Jesus mirror your concerns? Are the things that really upset Jesus the things that really upset you? Or, also this question... Does my life reflect the kind of things that makes Jesus? throw tables over. So the first thing I want us to see here in Luke nineteen, when we see this entrance into the temple, is, is what he does there. He's throwing these tables over. Luke goes through it quite quickly. He says, Enters the tables, enters the temple in verse twenty forty-five, and began to drive out those who sold. He's kind of that's the shortest description of this event that we have in our gospels. Um, Mark gives the most detail in Mark chapter eleven. Verses fifteen and sixteen. I'll just read it for you. Mark eleven fifteen and sixteen says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus is furious. He he's, has a righteous anger here. He's turning over money tables, people that are selling pigeons, he's not letting them sell these pigeons anymore, you had to bring these sacrifices to the temple and so what was going on in this scenario is it had become very much an economical activity, that instead of bringing the dove or the, the animal from your flock, when you'd go to Jerusalem, you'd just go and, and you'd buy the, the pure because you had to have a special pigeon, a special lamb, a special offering, you would just go and buy it, and you also had to pay a temple tax, and so there also was kind kind of a customs going on there. You had to have a special coin. Well, the money changers are taking your coin and exchanging it for more money. They're kind of ex- extorting you to get the special coin, charging you extra, and they're selling these pigeons, these animals that you would offer for sacrifice at kind of it's like being at a, at a well, at Disney World or at an airport. They kind of a captive audience so they can charge you $9 for a pop. You know, that's kind of, your, you need the animal at the temple. When you're at the airport, you pay more for your McDonald's there than you do anywhere else. I don't know why. But when you do, they've got a captive audience. And so that's what's going on here. They are making merchandise of, of these people who are coming to, to worship, to be made right, to connect with this, to connect with God. And so Jesus does not like what's going on here. And he throws all these tables over. This is supposed to be God's house. This is his temple. This is where people are to come to connect with God. This is supposed to be the place where seekers could go to find peace with God. And this courtyard of this temple is the place for this general population to be able to come in and to worship the, the one true monotheistic, the one true God. This ritual has been going on for hundreds of years, has just evolved into a marketplace for the religious people to get wealthy. Those who were supposed to be there to represent God's interests and to establish peace for the population coming there and looking for peace, they instead represent their own interests. They're interested in only their own interests and to establish their own wealth at the expense of... Of the God seekers. They were taking holy things, holy things, and they were using them for selfish gain. So three places in our Old Testament that give light to this event. If you flip back, not to we're in Luke, go Mark Matthew, and then one book before that again is Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Just briefly looking at this one Matthew or Malachi chapter three, verse one. Malachi chapter 3, page 954 in your Pew Bible, says this Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Several hundred years here before the appearance of Jesus Christ, there is this obscure prophecy about that after the messenger comes, the Lord will show up and he will will show up to his temple. And this is what is going on here. Christ has entered into Jerusalem and he has gone to his temple. He has come into the temple. And what is he going to do there? He's going to show up and he's going to clean house. And really, essentially, in 40 years after this, AD 70, his prophecy there earlier in Luke, Jerusalem is going to be raised. There's going to be not a stone left upon. The Romans are going to come in and build their ramparts around Jerusalem and they're going to tear this city down. And the temple is going to be gone in 40 years from this date of Jesus' life is going to be gone. And so the Lord showing up to the temple is important that it happens while Christ walks on the earth because the temple is going to be gone in a few years after this. But the Lord does show up to His temple. And He comes and what does He do? He cleans house. The second passage I want you to look at is Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah 56, that's pretty much the middle. Uh, Page 732 of your pew Bible. Page 732 of your pew Bible. This is Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. This is, this is where Jesus quotes from. You'll recognize it when we get to it salvation for foreigners is the heading there in your pew bible so you know what's going on here christ god with his people is not just uh the savior of the jewish people he has a nation he's the the seed of abraham is going to go out to all nations for the salvation of even foreigners even foreigners non-jewish people can come into right standing with the god of abraham isaac and jacob that's good news because unless you know your ethnic heritage, that's a large percentage of us here. get brought, We're these foreigners that are being spoken of. This is Isaiah 56, 1-7. Thus says the Lord, "...keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil." Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord. They're speaking negatively. Let not the foreigner speak negatively about themselves. For thus and the eunuch, the one who is excluded from the temple. Let him not talk, behold, I'm a dry tree. Let him not speak negatively. Why? For thus, verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, "...who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant... These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This Jesus says at the temple, right? He says, have you not read my house shall be called a house of prayer? He's quoting this from Isaiah 56. It's in the context of he's in the court of Gentiles. He's saying these people, the foreigners, the outsiders who are supposed to be called in to this place of prayer. My house will be, a place, will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. They're, they're, they're getting rid of that. They're, they're making merchandise to people. They're extorting people instead of making it a house of prayer for all People's, This is a place where, they, where every sinner of every kind could come to find forgiveness and the religious leaders were keeping it from them, keeping that from them. They were violating God's desire to see all kinds of sinners from all kinds of people groups to come to him for forgiveness and salvation. So Jesus calls them in this furious moment here. He reminds them, do you not remember This place, this holy place where we are standing is to be a place of prayer for all nations so that sinners can be saved. He reminds them. They are violating the very point of God's work among those who would come to Him. The last place is Jeremiah chapter 7 in the Old Testament. We'll look. That's back to the right from Isaiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, page 754 in your pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 15, we look at a big chunk here, but they have this temple, where they have this mindset. At the time of, Jeru- of Jeremiah, he's prophesying against the people of God. They think they're secure because they have the temple. They think they're secure because they have, they have religious externalism on lockdown. They've got the temple, they've got the Ark of the Covenant, they've got their rituals, they've got their tithes, they've got all these external things going on. They think we've got, it. we've got the temple, we're set. Jeremiah sees it differently as the, word, as the prophet of God. Jeremiah chapter 7, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. The words of... It's the temple, the temple, the temple. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Verse 9, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only to go on doing all these abominations... Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? You have the familiarity there? Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, And when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. They are trusting. To understand what what Jeremiah is prophesying against, there's this deep belief in religion, on its own, as justifying. Religious externalism, having, having ceremony, having, having some ceremonial ritualism that you've erected on the outside of you. There's this trust in it as somehow that's the ticket in. That's what's justifying is our religious externalism. They held to a view that was only concerned with external behaviors. If they had all of those down, if they kept up the facade, if they kept up the rituals, kept up their sacrifices, they banked their hope on the temple, the Lord, the temple, the temple, religious externalism. They had no consideration of true worship being a matter of love and devotion with the one true God. They're syncretists. They wanted to go worship the Baals, go after other gods, go into their pagan idolatry, sexual immorality and everything else that they're engaging in outside of God's covenant and then come back and say, well, yeah, but we got the temple. But we, we go to church. We do all these things we shouldn't do. But look at us. We, we, keep, up, uh, we keep up the externals of what we're supposed to do. So, yeah, we, we do all these things, but we keep our externalism. We keep up our temple worship. Jesus is warning of false religion And he's doing it without any cute language or small warning. He's doing it by throwing over tables. Putting on a show and relying on externalism is angering to Jesus and extremely dangerous. So where does that leave us? Well, often we react back in Luke 19 and 20 the same way the religious leaders do. How do they react? Who gives Jesus the right to tell me that? by what authority do you expect me to listen to you? That's what what they're saying. They're asking one day as he's teaching in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes come up and they say, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who told you to say these things? There is a tradition that if you were intelligent and going to be a rabbi, you taught, you would say, well, the rabbi, so they'd ask you a question, rabbi rabbi so-and-so says this, rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi, you would kind of answer by quoting your teachers. Jesus doesn't, Teach that way. He doesn't come under the authority of some other rabbi. He comes forward as his own rabbi. That's the dig behind their question. Who gave them this authority? Where are his credentials? Who are his teachers that let him speak and act the way that he is speaking and acting? Jesus doesn't give give them an answer, right? He says, well, I'll tell you what. Let me ask you a question. John, speaking of John the Baptist way back in Luke, is John's baptism, is that from God or is that from men? and they're too cowardly to answer. They're afraid that they... They don't think He is, but if they say He is, they, if they think John's baptism was right, then they'll wonder why when, Jesus, when John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, when John the Baptist says Jesus is the Messiah, why are they still rejecting Him? But if they say John the Baptist is from the world, everyone will get mad and stone them. They're cowards. They should either stand with their beliefs and get stoned, Or amend their ways and say John was right and worship Jesus. They don't want to answer. They're cowards. And so Jesus refuses to answer their question as well. But the answer is, is clear. Jesus doesn't need to get his authority from anyone else. He is the authority. He is the authority. He doesn't need to learn from a rabbi what he should say. He is the authority because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. When Jesus calls us to repentance, when Jesus comes into your life and throws over the tables of your religious externalism, he has the authority to do that because he is the Lord of the universe. You don't get to say, Jesus, who gives you the right to do this? What right does He have to do this? By the authority that He is the Creator of the universe. If your first response to a conviction of the Holy Spirit, of an issue you should be repenting of, something you should turn from in your life, if your first response is, who says I should do that? You're heading the wrong way down the street towards eternal life. You're heading the wrong way down the street towards forgiveness. So where does that leave us now? Well, if you're able to be honest, it leaves you in a bit of a danger zone. It really does. Like these passages, these are my least favorite to go through. Not because I don't like to say it to you, because it's nailing me to the wall. I I don't get an escape out of what's being taught here. We're in a danger zone. This is the reality. Who are the ones observing a potential religious ritual this morning? All of us sitting here in church this morning. And me chief among them. Because here I am, going through all the externals, we would say, look at that guy. He knows what he's doing. He's got it all together. We Look at, look at all these externals we've got built up. We are in the crosshairs this morning. We are the ones observing this religious potential, potential, just religious ritual this morning. We're the ones in danger of being about the things of God without really caring about the things of God. R.K. Hughes says in his commentary, what fools we are if we imagine that our association with the things of God makes us safe. What fools we are if we imagine that our association with the things of God, we're around them. We say the temple, the temple, how prominent is this in the world around us? I'm about the things of God. I I care about God. I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm around. I'm active. I get involved. What fools we are if we imagine that just mere association with the things of God makes us safe. And I think if we're honest, we have to concede that there are still rebellious parts of our hearts that are more devoted to appearing righteous than to really being righteous. Think if you're honest. If I'm honest... There are parts of my heart that are more concerned with appearing to love God than really loving God. That's dangerous. That is dangerous. That is is the temple, the temple, the temple that is more concerned with having those around us think we're doing well than actually being concerned with, am I a man after God? Am I pursuing God? Am I truly repenting? Am I truly rejoicing in Christ and not in all these external things? Jesus is throwing tables over the people who are having all the externals all on lockdown, but their hearts are far from him. It is dangerous, 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 dangerous to be heavy and hard about the business of external religion so you never have to deal with the internal heart that is that, where the real work happens. So there's three responses in closing. Three responses here. First is just to double down. Keep pretending. Keep up the external rituals. Keep showing up. Keep fooling everyone. You can fool everyone. Keep fooling everyone. Say to yourself that to fool and fool yourself that your rituals, your externalism merit something. And then find yourself in a world of hurt come judgment day. Because those externalisms, like Jeremiah says to his people, the temple, the temple, the temple, the day will come when they'll find themselves like Shiloh. Look it up. It's an interesting story, but we don't have time for it now. But it's not good what happens at Shiloh. These people who are depending upon the externals of religion instead of truly coming to Christ. So double down is your first possibility. The second response is to pull a Pharisee and say, Jesus doesn't understand. What authority does He have to tell me how I should live my life? What authority does He have to say what I should care about? What authority does Jesus really have? What does He really know? You know, He doesn't understand all the things that I've gone through, why I do the things that I do, why it's okay for me to live and act and do these sorts of things. He doesn't really understand. What does Jesus really know about what I have going on in my life? The answer is He knows everything. <laughs> about what's going on in your life. He is the authority. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. You cannot hide a dust mite from the sovereign of the universe. He knows what's going on. He does know. So, really, Alan, there's there's really three options here, but there's really only one good one. The third one is to repent and to trust in the good news of the gospel. That's what I want to be about every Sunday here. Repent and trust in the good news of the gospel. Jesus died to save pagans from their sins. And He died to save the den of robbing religious people from their sins too. He died to save sinners. In a few more days, Christ is going to go to the cross... He's going to give up his life. He's going to lay it down of his own accord for the sin of the world. He's going to not just cleanse the temple by throwing it over tables. He's going to cleanse his own people by giving of his own life, the shedding of his own blood, the wa- for the washing away, for the remission of the sins of his people. He's not just going to clean a temple. He's going to clean sinners from their sins. Christ is going to take the sin of man upon himself for the deliverance and forgiveness of every sinner who looks to him, looking to him, not to their external religious ritualism, but looking to him in faith. Not just cleansing the temple. He's going to cleanse the sins of his people by the sacrifice of himself. Do you? He's going, to, he's going to build a new temple. The gathering of his redeemed people with himself as the chief cornerstone. Do you want to be a part of that glorious and eternal building? Can you confess your sins this morning? Can you admit when Jesus has you up against the wall, when you can't hide anymore? Can you lay yourself low before the piercing gaze of Christ? The Pharisees, what should have happened that morning? The day, whatever it was. What should have happened when he threw those tables over? They get mad. What authority? Who tells you you can do stuff like that? They should have fallen on their knees. You're right. You're right. I, ha- I am making this a den of robbers. I am, I am all about the temple, the temple, the temple. And my heart is far from you. The Pharisees, the money changers, those who sold pigeons should have fallen on their knees and cried out for mercy. You're right. I have gone astray. I am pursuing my own desires, my own will, my own wants, my own heart, my own kingship over yours. Christ, have mercy. They should have fallen on their knees in repentance. And when Christ shines his light into the dark parts of your life, what do you do? Don't be the Pharisees. Fall on your knees before him. Here's what you should do. Confess, repent, look to Christ Turn from your sins and trust him. That's really what communion at his heart is about. We take time. We should be in these next few minutes as we sing the Gloria Patri. And as you get in line to come up here, you should be taking time to examine your own hearts. What's the sin that Christ is, that the Holy Spirit is bringing to light right now in my heart to repent of it looking to Christ, remembering and rejoicing in His broken body and His shed blood so that true worship would come from us for all that He has done to cleanse us and to bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, shine your light. I do not want to be a pretender in this place this morning. work your conviction by your Holy Spirit in the areas of my own heart, every heart in this place, that, God, we would truly rejoice in the good news of the gospel because when that light is shown, when our pretending is revealed, when our sinfulness is revealed, when our self-sufficiency is revealed and we cry out, have mercy, (laughs) you are right there to answer. The shed blood of our Savior covers every sin of your people. Make that real for our rejoicing in this place this morning. In Christ's name, amen.